I'm here with you, man. Okay. <laughs> I um. It's funny. I'm on the podcast. This is actually real. Yeah, sir. Yeah. I um. Do you know Mike Myers? Probably. Yeah, sure. The guy who, who was Shrek and Austin Powers and all those great movies. Yeah. He just came out with a new TV show on Netflix. Okay. Called The Pentaverant. Oh. It's like a spoof on like the Illuminati. Yeah. And like he plays every character in the Illuminati. Oh, okay. And he's supposed to, I don't think he's actually Canadian, but he's playing like a Canadian yeah, he's from, character. He's from Toronto. Oh, he is? Yeah. Okay. Well, he's playing a Canadian character in the movie, in the TV show. And it's one of the worst TV shows I've ever seen. Okay. <laughs> and I feel like I'm he's sure. doing he's doing Canada so bad in it. It's so it's, it's they have the craziest accents. Like they're like over exaggerating everything. Sure. And then like there's this one scene. Uh, I forget her name. She's this newest act, a newer actress. Okay. And she it, oh this is kind of a spoiler. Basically, you, you turn it turns out that the actress whatever the the supporting actress yeah. she um. She's like a double agent. Oh, fuck. This is really bad. I'm spoiling it. But she's she's a double agent, and she's not actually from Canada. And she has to practice becoming a Canadian okay. to trick the Canadians. Okay. And there's like a scene of her like being like, oh, sorry, boot that. And it's like <laughs> fucking really going into the stereotypes. Yeah. And so I've been watching that. Even though it's a terrible... I'm sorry, Mike Myers. It's, it's not that good of a show. Like it's okay. rated like twenty percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Sure, and I like corny stuff too, but that it's not it. But like I've been watching that for like a week now. It's like one of those. Sh- I don't know if you have any like shows you hate watch ever, but <laughs> sure. I just watched like like multiple seasons of Selling Sunset. Okay, <laughs> which is a show I just love because it's so amazing to heckle. I need to watch that. That's yeah. the that's the reality. Um, uh, what is that? What, what realtor show, right? Yeah, that's so funny. And they, it's just a bunch of women who are selling like twenty million dollar houses in L.A. and are just gossiping about each other in the office, and that's the whole show. Like it's just, <laughs> and and so every scene is two people sitting at a like a cafe table, talking about some other person who's not there, <laughs> and then later like two other people talking about those people having had a coffee like without them yeah. and they said this and there's so much they said she said he said <laughs> and it's and the real estate like you never find out like they list houses they show houses you never find out if anything gets sold or oh, really? what happens like it's just it's really just about the interoffice gossip that's hilarious but yeah basically um I think of I because I watch all that Canadian stuff, and now I have a Canadian. Sure. Oh my gosh, you might be the first Canadian in person in the studio. <laughs> oh my gosh. I guess Whew. so. So you're originally from Canada. I am. What what part of Canada? So I was born in this town called Brantford, okay, which is about an hour from uh, Toronto. Okay. And uh, so Brantford is noted for a bunch of historical things. Uh, Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone in okay. Brantford. Uh, so which brought about the age of modern technology. The telephone was invented and suddenly we had the internet. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, Phil Hartman, the comedian, was from Brantford. Okay. Uh, Wayne Gretzky, the hockey player, oh, he was yeah. from Brantford. And he actually uh, grew up with my brothers. I have two siblings. Uh, sorry, I have three siblings. I have two brothers who are older than me mm. and they were the same age as Wayne Gretzky. So they went to public school with him. They like played you know, baseball and soccer in the park with Wayne Gretzky. Mm-hmm. And when I was like a teenager, Wayne had just signed his first big NHL deal. 
and he got a Ferrari as like a signing bonus. Mm. And so Brantford is not a big place. And so this Ferrari, you'd see it driving around town. Like you knew Wayne was in town. <laughs> and and me and my friends, we were like out, uh, you know, I'm Canadian. So we played like hockey in the street. <laughs> like it was just, we'd Very like, stereotypical. We'd like <laughs> put a couple nets in the street and just like you yell car and you have to move all the nets and then keep playing. And at one point, like the black Ferrari pulled up like, beside us oh wow and i guess wayne one of wayne's friends like lived across the street or something and so he like you know stopped he got out of his car he like gave us a thumbs up which we thought uh, as like you know whatever 11 year olds 10 year olds it was like a huge deal that like wayne gretzky had endorsed our hockey playing <laughs> and like we were next for the nhl yeah and uh i remember my mom like immediately came out and like made us stop playing because <gasps> she didn't want us to hit the car uh... and, like you know who knows what a Headlight of a and did, Ferrari cost. Did any of you guys uh, become NHL players? No, <laughs> no, not at all. So, uh, how long uh, were you living in uh, Canada for? So, I mean, I moved to Seattle in 2012. Oh, so, so more. So, I most of my life was in Canada. Like, I grew up in Canada. I grew up in Toronto. Um, I grew up like I. I went to uh, university in Canada. Um, I've lived all over the place. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I I grew up in in Brantford, I went to university in a place called Hamilton, which is about half an hour. It's sort of half halfway between Brantford and Toronto. Okay. Uh, and then after university, I wait. What'd you go to school for? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, so I went to school. My education background is really odd. Uh, so in high school, I was flagged for this special program, mm. which was called Talent Pool. And it was this experiment in education where they they cherry picked a bunch of kids who I don't know did well on some aptitude tests or whatever. So mm -hmm. grades like nine, ten, eleven, and twelve, I was put into this experimental high school program, which was all self learning. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have any classes, mm -hmm. I didn't have any exams or or tests, and we as this group of thirty students taught each other topics. So we would have a class on medieval history mm. and everybody in the class would just pick something that interested them about medieval history. And you'd be like 16, you'd go learn about castles and how castles worked. And then you'd have to present what you learned to the other students in the class. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was, uh, we were just talking about this, you're 21. Yeah. So I'm thinking about this time in my life because it, a lot happened to me at that time in my life, which I'll I'll talk about. Yeah. Is that um so I was I came out of this schooling into like regular high school. In my last year I like did regular high school because mm -hmm. they decided to end this program, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but we were sort of just thrown back into regular high school. No more med medieval year. classes for you guys. <laughs> but but it was really hard that year because uh we hadn't had any structure in our education for Dang. four years. And suddenly it was like, I gotta do this test. I gotta like, you know, write this exam. I gotta actually like go to class. Like it's, mm. it, was, it was a really like shocking thing for me. But I also really was like an extremely ambitious kid. And so that year I w ran for school president and won. I was like a star soccer player on the soccer team. I was the head of the debate club. I ran the school poetry journal. Dang. I ran like the, it was, I was like, it was in the chess club. Like I was just, I was like, I was the lead in the school play. Like they sort of trained us in this program 
to be like really ambitious, like self-starters. Wow. And I, it's almost like when we got thrown back into the regular pool of students, we were just like terrors because mm. we were like, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to do really well at it. So, I mean, in that way, it was kind of an interesting program to have gone through. But it's something that when I think back on it and I talk to other people about their high school experience, yeah. I'm just like, oh, wow, my high school was really strange. Like, Did you think you were uh, any type of a leader before? you went to that program? Or do you think it taught you to become a leader? I think it very much did. It taught really? us to be leaders. And and it also kind of screwed us up a little bit. Mm. Like we all, so we, after high school, um, I went to university and I went to university of fine art and Japanese. Oh, wow. So <laughs> I, I was like taking classes in Japanese. I was doing painting and drawing in school. And uh, when I was 20, my dad died mm. from cancer unexpected just sort of one day he got a he got a, a notice like Jeez. you've got a tumor it's malignant he died three months later four months later Jeez. and it was awful i was 20 so i was like really shocked for me yeah and i was in school and Wait, were you were you living with family still at that time uh i had just moved out to residence okay. so i was living in residence at university so i wasn't that paying a lot of attention to what the day-to-day -day, mm. like what was happening with my parents i guess and that so it was a big shock for me yeah when i was 20 uh, I dropped out of art school almost immediately afterwards because I just found I couldn't paint and draw. I was just not happy. It wasn't not that you need to be happy to paint and draw, but I was just yeah. found art classes really hard. I actually ended up getting a university degree in Zen Buddhism. Oh, so so I took Zen Buddhism in school, and and ultimately that's what I have a university degree in. <laughs> what? <laughs> and, that's insane. And uh, uh, but then. So I graduated, I was 22, yeah. and just as I was graduating, my mom died. Oh, shit. And I suddenly was like 22, you're 21. So, yeah. and I was like, okay, I, uh, what do I do with my life? Like yeah. I, I have a degree in Zen Buddhism and I, I don't know what to do with myself. Like, yeah. and I don't have a home to go back to. And uh, so I traveled a lot, like I ended up just becoming a bit of a nomad for a few years. I Damn. went, I moved to Quebec. I lived in, in like outside of Montreal. Uh, I moved out West and I lived on Vancouver Island, like the North end of Vancouver Island for a while mm. in Canada, I'm still in Canada. Uh, I moved to France. Mm. I lived in like the Alps in France for uh, a year. And uh, I did a lot of skiing <laughs> and figuring out myself, I guess. Wow. Uh, and then eventually like I sort of settled in, in um, back in Ontario near where I grew up and I got a job at, a, at an ad agency and I worked in advertising. Well, how do you go from your college degree and being like, have you seen Doctor Strange? No, I haven't seen oh. it, no. But. One of the, I think the first Doctor Strange movie, like he is trying to learn how to use like the mystical powers or whatever, sure. but to do that, like he needs to like find inner peace and all this. Yeah. So he goes and like lives in the Alps and there's all this craziness. Yeah, yeah but that's pretty much <laughs> yeah. my life. That was what I did for, I actually always feel bad for like, you know, to like friends I had in that time period, like girls I dated, yeah. like, because I was so like in need of like family roots and foundations. So yeah. like everyone I met was like, you're gonna be my best friend forever, you know? Oh. We're gonna be together forever and it was just like i put a lot of pressure on a lot of like relationships in that time period because i didn't know how to be what about myself. like siblings like any siblings yeah so i have three siblings um they're all quite 
a bit older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, so my sister is eight years older than me, Melanie. Uh, my two brothers, Ian and Neil, are 12 and 13 years older than me. Jeez. So, so growing up, like uh, they were around when I was a little kid. Yeah. But through those kind of kind of teen years where you really form your identity, um, I, it was just me and my parents at home. Mm. And so, um, yeah. So it was kind of an interesting. Like that was a like a really like influential time in my life to think about like what am I doing now and how do I kind of move forward and what am I going to do with my time? Do you think they realized how hard that was for you and your siblings? Yeah, I mean, they. I think so. But at the same time, I also think everybody wasn't quite sure what to do. Like, right, Jeez. It's not. And so, yeah, I mean, it was It was a time. I mean, I, I don't, like, I'm not, it was a long time ago. So, wow. like, but it was, like, a lot happened in, in the time period when I was, you know, 20 to 22 years old. Yeah. And, and then, um really it took a while i met my wife um and we started dating when i was 25 so um and then we got married when i was 30 and we've been together ever since wow we've been together 23 years 24 years Jeez. so uh yeah so uh, so what did you did you have like money to live or were you working at these at jobs when you were traveling like a nomad yeah i mean i did Somewhat like I, I did a bunch of random jobs. So here's the other thing, which is strange. So I'm 49. Okay. And and the thing that that I want to talk to you about, like because we were talking a little bit before we started talking here about yeah. like the pandemic and growing up in the last few years through the pandemic. You know, for me, when I was 21, it was 1994. The internet did not exist. Mm. So you gotta think about this for a second. There was no email, there was yeah. no websites. I mean, they existed, but like no one used the internet. No one knew what it was. And I remember in that last year of university when I was studying Buddhism, that a friend of mine was like, hey, you know, you can get an email address. And I was like, why would I get an email address? And so he was like, you got a free email address as a student. And so like he was the only other person I knew who had an email address. Yeah. And he's my roommate. Yeah. So we would like, oh, okay, I will go to the computer lab. I'm going to log into this terminal at the computer lab. I'm going to going to write you an email. And then I'm going to hope that you at some point during the day also go to a computer lab and check this email <laughs> that I'm not going to be, I don't know, home for dinner or something. Otherwise, I guess you'll just figure it out. Yeah. Like it it was funny that those early days of like there not being any internet yeah. and and uh, but then what happened is that, you know, in 95, so like when I was first kind of figuring myself out, I got a job at like an Internet company that was like helping people get Internet accounts. Uh. Like what? And like there was a whole sales pitch of like, why? Why would you want to be on the Internet? What? Why would you need an email address? And you would be like calling people, like cold calling people and saying, hey, we, there's this new thing called the Internet. You should you should check it out. Like Jeez. we have a package. We can sell you the Internet for whatever it was, ten dollars a month. And you can log in and use email. And people were like, why would I want any of this? Like, yeah. And so I don't know. It was, it was an interesting time. Like, but how do you convince people that the Internet's essential at that point i don't know i wasn't very good at the job i didn't it didn't last long it was like telemarketing so it was it was uh but then yeah i I mean i traveled around i worked for this magazine so i got this job one of my first real like jobs that like started my career yeah uh came from kind of a friend of a friend someone introduced me to someone who had started a magazine about divorce yeah so this is a crazy story this is somebody who 
had previously worked for like a wedding magazine. So wedding magazines are an interesting industry because someone buys a wedding magazine for kind of the six months to a year before they get married. Mm-hmm. And then they get married and they don't resubscribe to the magazine. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously people don't really use magazines today, but yeah. in the 90s, magazines were the thing. That was how you learned about information. And so someone would buy a magazine for their wedding for a year and then and then they would unsubscribe. And, and so ma- wedding magazines would often recycle content. So they would mm. run the same articles you know, two years later because huh. they knew almost none of the same people were going to have seen the same article. And this guy had recently gotten divorced and he worked for a wedding magazine. And he's like, we should create a magazine for divorce because people for the year in and around when they decide they're going to get divorced will need help. Like, how do you get back into dating? How can you pick a, the right divorce lawyer? How do you manage, you know, uh, time with your kids? And and like he thought this advice would be really helpful. Yeah. And so the, my first job was working for this divorce magazine. <laughs> and I didn't have any skills at all. Like I didn't know how to do any computer stuff. And I, you know, I I, mean, I, I was like a kid with an art degree. Like I'd, I'd done art in school. I had a Zen Buddhism degree. Like I was ambitious, but I, I had no actual skills. Yeah. And they took me on and I was like a real... Uh, trial by fire i just learned how to use i was i was like writing stories for them mm-hmm. initially and then i would do it was such a small operation everyone would have to lay out their own stories in the magazine and where were you where were you living at this point so living in toronto toronto okay and uh and so we would we would create these stories and then um I was really good at the layouts. Yeah. So I started having all these little side trades with people that I worked with. Like, okay, well, you can write my story for me and then I'll lay out your story for you. Yeah. And pretty soon I was the guy who was designing the magazine. And huh. uh, so, yeah, it was. You know, that, I did that for a while. And then I went to France. Um, did you speak the language? Uh, yeah, I mean, in Canada... Oh, yeah, what you, am I talking about? Yeah, yeah. Well, in Canada, you have to, you have to take French... French Canadians. Uh, by... By law, you have to take French until you're 16. So, <laughs> really? So, like, everyone in school learns basic French. Wow. Um, I'll also say what's interesting about living in Canada is that all the packaging, like, you know, milk and bread and everything, is French on one side. Hmm. So, like, when you buy things in, in the shelf, like on a grocery store shelf, you'll buy this product. And if you turn it around, it's got French on the other side. Mm. And so there's a lot of French you just pick up through osmosis because you're mm. just exposed to it all the time. Um, but then I took French in school. Like, I was, I was inter- interested in French. I was interested in learning French. And yeah. so, like, I took French classes. And... Um, but, you know, living in an environment like living in France, that was the big thing for me was that in, when I was living in France, I would like take packages off the shelf and turn them around and be like, it's still in French. I don't I, still, <laughs> I don't actually know what this is like. Uh, but, you know, it, it you learn a language very quickly when you live there mm-hmm. and you learn how to order coffee. You learn how because if you want coffee, you have to learn how to order it. Otherwise, yeah. you're not going to get it. Wait. So when you were moving around, you had friends and like relationships or were you like. Was it hard to make any? Like you said, you kind of grew attached to people, or how would? Yeah, what was that like? I mean, sure. I mean, I I went to France because my girlfriend at the time was doing her master's degree mm. in France, and so uh, I went to France with her because she was going to school, and um, so I took French classes. Like I went to university, mm. and I took French classes, and I learned about French history around the world and the history of the French language in places like Quebec and countries in Africa where they speak French and um, different like unique ways that French like in Belgium 
they use slightly different numbers mm. in French than they use in other parts of like in, they use in France. So you had to learn all these little things like, you know, it's it's things like in America, like people on the West Coast say hella or, yeah. you know, y'all like there's all these words that I've picked up living in the US <laughs> that aren't like, you know, like they're almost like like the most American words. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, you know, I, I never said them when I was living in Canada. Like it's. Yeah. But it's like now I'm like, oh, I got to say hello all the time because I live on the West Coast. Like, I, yeah. Like, show off. Yeah, that's that's so that's so crazy that you're talking about the how those times were very like pivotal for you though. Like, sure. I don't think I don't know. Maybe it's I don't want to think about, it, or maybe because I'm living through it, I don't think about it. But either way, I don't, I I don't really I don't, I've never really paid attention that this is probably a very pivotal time in my life. Sure. Like I did have maybe this is an epiphany. I was telling my friends the other day that I don't think I've ever had. A real epiphany, yeah. but, <laughs> but I think the other day I had an epiphany about, I don't even know if it's the right use of the word epiphany, sure. but I remember when I was like 12, okay, yeah. and I would get grounded or whatever the situation was, yeah. and I would be like, I, in seven years or whatever, I don't even remember this or care about this sure. anymore, and you know, like seven years or however long go by, and now, now I'm here yeah. thinking about when I was, I guess that wasn't, I'd be Okay, if I was twelve, let's say nine years ago, then so yeah. like in those nine years, I I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, that wasn't really that important. But it was it's just interesting to be where exaggeration in my mind where I was yeah. like, in nine years, this won't matter at all. And now nine sure. years later, here I am. So it's interesting to think that. But those we're events have also like like still they still come up. Like, yeah, like you're still thinking about it. Yeah, like it's it like those events shape you. Those random things that yeah, like you know. Uh, yeah it's funny like there's things that like happened to you when you were a child that like come back to haunt you that you just think about like trauma <laughs> yeah you know i i you know we were you know we think about aging yeah. and it's like in my head i'm still that same person like right. i'm not like i don't feel like i'm 49 but i don't i don't feel like i'm any different than i was when i like i'm the same person i was when i was 21 like mm. it's and but you know, I, I think about how, like, when I was a kid, there was some, some, like, jerk that I went to public school with, and he, like, teased me about my walk. Like, I don't know why. Like, it's just, I I was a kid. Like, I yeah. walked like any other kid. Like, but he was <laughs> like, oh, you got a weird walk. And, like, I was, like, so paranoid that, like, I walked weird that I, like, spent a lot of time, like, trilling, like, work on my walk. Like, you know, it's, like, whatever. I'm, like, 10 years old. I'm, like, working on my walk. Cause, like, walk normal and stiff or whatever. And, uh, but, like, I'm, this summer, I, or, like, recently, I guess, mm -hmm. I, my knee started hurting. Like, I just have this, like, random knee pain. Yeah. And I'm, like, oh, crap. And I went to see the doctor about it, and I'm, like, what's going on? And they're, like, oh, you know, you just have to, like, you have to walk differently to like, you know, it's just, just mechanical. Like it's just 49 years of use. Like, yeah. And so I'm just, I think back now, I'm like, it's like I'm 10 years old again and I'm like trying to learn how to walk differently. Like, so I, <laughs> oh like, my, my knee doesn't hurt. Like it's just Shit. It's funny. Like you just go through these loops. You just do the same things over and over again. Damn. This is going to, I hope this doesn't come off as dark, but do no. you think, do you think, in a way, it was kind of important for what happened with your parents to shape who you are now. Or do you oh, think? Sure. Do you think your life would have been completely different if they were still alive? Do you think you would have traveled at all or anything? Yeah. No. I mean, it, it's it's actually something I think about a lot. Like mm. it's and I and I got to be honest. Like if if that hadn't happened to me, like so many choices I made would have been made differently. 
Yeah. I mean, just times when I was by myself and I could choose to do something crazy, like, and I did, like, I, um, and like I drove across the country, like I drove when I when I went out to BC the first time. I just drove in my car. Like I was like, hey, I'm gonna go to BC. Like I had some friends. Uh, I so the very early days of the internet. Like I met a girl like on the internet. Like wow. she was one of the few people I knew who had an, an email address. Yeah. Like it was. It's like you've got an email address too. Let's hang out. <laughs> uh, but she lived in like in like New Jersey. Oh, and so we would like email each other like. Pen know, pal. But, but our lives was a pen pal exactly and and my friends at one point i was like talking like was like waxing philosophical about like what if this girl's the one like yeah you know i was very obsessed with the idea of the one like when i was that age and and also because of the situation i'd been in like i yeah. was just like i've got to find someone who's like, going to be the one who's going to you know set, set everything right and and i remember my friends were like we should just drive there and i was like how far is New Jersey? And it was like, it's like 10 hours drive. So oh. we just got in our car. We were at a bar. This is like a crazy story because we were like at a bar in Toronto or like outside of Toronto at like 10 o'clock at night. And it was like, let's just get in the car and drive to New Jersey. So we just got in the car, drove through the night. We had no plan. <laughs> and my friends were just really into this idea. Like I was going to meet this girl. That's romantic we as figure fuck. out what's going to happen. Wow. Uh, we only had like, this is back in the days, there was no internet. So we had like, three cassettes like in the car and we just played them over and over again and we were like singing songs like to keep ourselves awake through the drive and we got to new jersey and i didn't quite know where she lived so <laughs> like i had kind of a vague sense like she was in residence at a, at a college there so we like went to the college and we're like asking around and like trying to find we basically couldn't find her yeah. at the college and so we left we left a note on her like door and uh, then we like left and we like drove. My friend was like, I want to go to Manhattan. I've never been there. So we drove to Manhattan yeah. like and driving around the streets of like Manhattan, which is crazy because we were all dumb kids, like driving around with yellow cabs, like super dangerous traffic. And, and of course it was like with my friend's parents' car. Like, <laughs> they, we didn't tell anybody we were going. Like, oh, shit. Finally, we're like at a 7-Eleven on the side of the road and my friend and Am's like, okay, I got to call my mom and tell her like we're in New Jersey because it's like, we almost had a fender bender. And he's oh, like, no. I better like cop to this whole thing. And I was like, this is a weird thing to call your mom and be like, <laughs> hey, guess what? We just drove 10 hours to another country <laughs> just for fun. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Did the but, girl ever get back to you though? Like, yeah, you know, and she was just like in the next room and we just had like, you know, ships in the night and, uh, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a love connection. So it, it yeah, never, there we yeah. go. That's so interesting though. Like the, back to the family thing. Cause yeah. I, I feel like for me, I feel like maybe if you're lucky, your family should be like the most trustworthy people. You know what I mean? Sure. Like those are the people that you bounce all your ideas off of and you should be able to tell them like things that you want to tell your friends or whatever. Like sure. I feel like that, that, that would be like, that's like a, that's a great family right there right yeah. like being able to like truly trust your family and bounce off ideas and if like something like maybe if it's, maybe if it's a breakup or whatever just tell yeah. them whatever right sure. but like i want and i have a, i have a mixed relationship with my family but i think i always will um I, I love the fact that i can bounce ideas off yeah them even with the even with my here's a little story even with my podcast title right so yeah 
before it was called Triple H Nast, Hottest Hip Hop News and Sneaker Talk. And okay. The whole thing about people thought it was Triple H, like the wrestler. And yeah. It was just a, and then I called it Triple H Nast, but like you couldn't, if you said Triple H Nast to Alexa or whatever, they yeah. wouldn't know what it was because it was an acronym. So sure. They're probably thinking it's <laughs> Nast or yeah. whatever, right? Sure. But like, Honestly, like my mom was the idea who was like, maybe just cut off the H's and call it NAST podcast, yeah. right? And then, of course, it, I have to come around to that idea just because yeah. she says it doesn't mean I'm going to fucking sure. do it, right? Sure. <laughs> so she, it took me, it literally took me like three or four months to really decide that's what I wanted yeah. to change because it was like my baby at the point, you know sure. what I mean? And the podcast is still my baby. But yeah. um, so it's, but I'm not close with all my family members and I feel like, Mm. Yeah, I I'll always appreciate that I can bounce ideas off my mom. So I I wonder what that was like. Like you probably you literally just had to like come up with your own decisions, or did you have people you could bounce ideas off of? Like did you tell yeah. people that you were deciding to just you wanted to travel the world, or like what was that? What yeah, was your, com I mean, your community like at that it's, point? It's an interesting. I mean, I had I had a good support like, system group of friends yeah. at the time um and you know people i had gone to school with this this like weird high school experience i'd had yeah the group of us the sort of 30 of us who had like been like pulled off into this separate program like we all became really tight because we were all in school with each other all day every day like mm -hmm. it was a it was different from normal high school and that like high school you know you've got hundreds of students but like there was just 30 of us in classes mm -hmm. every day and we were all in the same classes yeah um so I, I developed a really close connection with a lot of people from that program. Um, but, you know, like I also want to acknowledge, like I, I don't want it to sound in any way like my siblings weren't there for me. They right. absolutely were. And I we get along great. Um, oh, yeah. I, I think I moved out to Seattle in 2012. And uh, so for 10 years now, I've lived out on the West Coast. And so I'm several thousand miles from my siblings. Mm -hmm. uh, the three-hour time difference between Seattle and Toronto is just enough that it's annoying. <laughs> like there's a uh, on there's a new AJ Swade record called okay. uh, Metatron's Cube, and on that that's album, a Seattle artist, by the way, guys. Yeah, and on that album, he has a song called Three Hours Late," and it's just about like having family on the East Coast, and you 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 try to call someone, and like you, you know you wake up and you're gonna call someone, but they're at lunch, and then they're going to call you back but like you're at lunch and it's like there's three hours is just this awkward amount of time like the number of evenings that i you know uh, i'm done work i have dinner it's eight o'clock at night seven thirty at night mm. and i think oh i'm gonna call one of my siblings yeah it's like oh wait it's it's 11 where they are yeah like it's almost midnight you know my some of my siblings have kids they're in bed like yeah and so it's there's a lot of misconnections and yeah. i i'm sad about that because it's i i would like to be able to talk to them more and we have to sort of find times that are actually like convenient for both of us mm. and if we do that it's great but um uh but yeah so i, I definitely you know i hear what you're saying about this sense of like you can do anything and and who do you rely on to help you like be the ballast in your life? And um, I mean, today, obviously I've been married for 23 years. So yeah. like my wife is a huge part of that. It's a good and person she, to have. <laughs> she, yeah, absolutely. And she is an amazing like collaborator, partner, inspiration. Um, you know, she makes music, she makes art, she designs beautiful things. And, 
And so all of the work that she is doing, like she actually designed some of the record covers for Crane City mm -hmm. uh, music. She's done a lot of the, some of the marketing materials, the, some of the website. Like, so, so she's also an important part of like what Crane City music is and what we're doing with that. Um, uh, but just having her in my life is so important for having ballast. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, you know, I'm just, I, I have so many ideas spinning around. I'm spinning plates like, constantly and mm. i work all the time and i think about stuff i could do i have like endless lists of like half formed ideas that will probably never happen right. um and i think that's you know it's it's a challenge to sort of decide like what do you spend time on what do you do you know you've got this nas podcast like yeah. you, it probably takes up a lot of your time My and it's tired life yeah right now. <laughs> and it, and, but like you know i think about like why why do you do it like why yeah. why did you start doing it Mm. I think it's changed. I think the answer has changed. Sure. But I think right now the answer is because I never felt like I had a community. Sure. And where I grew up, mm -hmm. um, I was like one of the only black people, right? Mm -hmm. And now looking back on it, it's not like when people think of like racism, they probably are like, mm -hmm. that guy just called that guy the N word or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But I feel like I don't even know. I've, it's like subtle racism that mm. certain people may not even realize, but like things like not getting picked for certain activities mm -hmm. or never given like an opportunity to be in like a leadership role, mm -hmm. which I don't want to say that's all just fucking racism, mm -hmm. but there is a little thing where like if you're, if you're the entire, if your entire community is like white and you're mm -hmm. that one black guy, you're not oh, getting yeah. chosen for anything. Like you got to think about, Hey, I want an opportunity. And then you don't yeah. get it. You're like, what the fuck's going on here? Sure. Right. Um, and those are just little things that like eat at the back of your head. Like yeah. I'm, n I'm not someone who complains about like missed opportunities because I feel like I really go for as any yeah. opportunity I can get. Um, but yeah, I really felt like um, I didn't have a community growing up. Like I tried to be in sports mm -hmm. and I never made a community as sports. I was in band and I had some friends in band class, yeah. but... I was I didn't have a community in band yeah. because I wasn't that passionate about playing the clarinet compared sure. to other people, yeah. right? Um, but I was talented. Like there was like a thing where like you had to take like practice tests yeah. to see where you placed in the program, and like I would do no practicing and then I would just ace the fucking test. So yeah. I was musically inclined, but sure. I wasn't passionate enough to be like, oh, let's go home and practice together or whatever, yeah. right? So that's music. That there's sports. I wasn't a terrible student, but I wasn't the greatest. Yeah. Probably like, probably like I don't even know what I graduated with, and I, and I really don't yeah. care. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But um, and then I um, got hired. You know, at ninety two point five when I was in high school as a senior, and I thought community. I was going to find community in radio, but everyone was so much older than me. Yeah. That there was a disconnect there with yeah. things I wanted to get done or. Th things I were excited about getting done and seeing how commercial radio works. So I never really found a community there. And while I was working on the station, I had the idea of creating the podcast. And yeah. I really, the the very first reason I created the podcast was to prove to the radio station that I was worthy of my voice being heard. Sure. Um, which it wasn't. And, uh, but as I continued to do the podcast, I was like, why do I need to count on a radio station? I literally made a fucking podcast to be a resume for a radio <laughs> sure. station to hear me. Sure. <laughs> um, but then I started meeting people yeah. and 
realizing that like all my friends were going off to college. So I had no community left in Seattle yeah. and I started becoming friends with like artists. And then I realized still no one was in my age group because artists are all, artists are all ages. Yeah. Like I've only in the past few months found artists that are like my age. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started realizing that age really doesn't matter when forming your community. But um, now it's just gotten to a point where like during the pandemic when certain people in schools had to like stay home or literally stay in school and couldn't leave school because of COVID, right? They may have lost some social skills. Yeah. And with me, I feel like I've gained all the social skills during the pandemic because I was, I within the first week of the pandemic, I fucking started doing zoom interviews. I was like, I really feel like I was one of the first people to start doing zoom interviews during the, during COVID. And I, um, yeah, so that's my community of artists is really what kept me sane during the pod, during yeah. the pandemic. So yeah, I would say community is why I started the podcast in hopes of finding community but not finding it and then I realized I can make my own community and become my own leader. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh yeah, I don't I don't know. <laughs> like I mean, in some ways like community is is the same uh, impetus that, yeah. that started me getting involved in doing all the stuff I do with Seattle hip hop. Yeah. Um, I mean that for me, I moved to Seattle in 2012. The, I'm going to rewind that story slightly mm. and say I was living in Toronto. Yeah. Um, so kind of, I did a bunch of stuff. So picking up where I left off the story, I was, I worked in advertising for a while. I worked, uh, for a, another com startup kind of doing software design. Um, I eventually ended up working back in magazines. Mm-hmm. So I spent about a decade being a magazine designer. Wow. So I was doing like print magazine design. And this was a kind of early, like I guess the early part of the 2000s. Okay. And um, print magazine design was like really exciting. It was like the place being in a magazine. I was working at a big magazine in Toronto. Mm. And I worked at this company that was kind of like a Condé Nast. So it was like a, like 12 titles under one roof. Yeah. It was kind of a strange like work environment because- You there, said Condé Nast, right? It was like Condé Nast. That's yeah, so, so funny. I don't even know what that is, but I've seen it so many times. Yeah. So when I created the Nast podcast, that's sure. what I- Sure. Like, <laughs> what is Condé Nast? So, I've seen it so much. So Condé Nast is a company okay. that owns a whole bunch of, they own, they own Vogue. They own GQ. They oh, own. Wow. They're a big magazine publisher in New York, and so they own all of these big magazine titles that you know. Wow. And um, and they are like responsible for bringing all these brands. You know, publishing the magazines every month, being the influencers they're being, putting out websites, whatever they're doing. That was kind of for me when I was younger. Like that was like like the place to work. Yeah. Was like working at Condé Nast and being at the That's epitome so of culture and what was happening in the world. Um, and so in Toronto, there's a company called St. Joseph Media, which is kind of like the Canadian Condé Nast. Mm -hmm. And there's 12 magazines at that company. Um, I was a magazine designer at one of the, the titles and, um, I, at some point I was at a, we had like a office Christmas party Yeah, and I was talking to the CEO of the company and and I was like, oh yeah, you know, like the, for some reason we were talking about the web and I, it was early days of the web. It was like the kind of 2008, 2009, like at a time when magazines were really starting to take the internet seriously and they right. were building blogs and social media presences and so on. And, and I was sort of critical of like what 
the websites that we had were mm -hmm. and how they could be so much better and did my like off the cuff pitch as to how the magazines could be better. And, and I found like a week later, I was offered this job mm -hmm. as like the head of digital to like run, like put all these ideas into practice. And um, so I made this transition. And I remember at the time, like talking to colleagues of mine who were like, oh, you're going to go work in the web? Like it's such a step down from being a print magazine designer. Wow. Like you're, you know, the web, like who wants to be part of that? Like it's just trash. Like it's, and I was like, I think the web's the future. Like this is like, yeah. like, like a lot of those people I know, you know, this is like 20 years ago now, but like a lot of those people who were like, we're going to be print designers till the end, like suddenly found themselves out of jobs because those magazines closed Jeez. and like all the websites are now what a lot of these, these titles are and what all these brands have become. Dang. Um, but so I, I made this really opportune, like I was a really good uh, time for me to make that, that shift. And, uh, and so I, I ended up becoming the head of digital for this magazine company. And it was my job to rethink magazine titles as how they could be web properties hmm. and how we could create social media followings and how we could create blogs. And um, it, it's funny, I think about like, it's one of the rare times that like Zen Buddhism yeah. has been like really the best thing I could have gone to school for. <laughs> uh, there's this, I had this teacher, uh, Robert Scharf, who was like a Zen Buddhist mm -hmm. and he would you know, give us these really like amazing, inspiring lectures. And he had this one lecture where he was trying to talk about this idea of impermanence that that we one of the central things in in Zen is that we get kind of attached to ideas mm -hmm. or we get attached to things and that we have trouble seeing that that things are just like a construction of concepts. So it was my example. Mm -hmm. uh, he took his chair that he had behind his desk and he put it on his desk and he said, what is this? And everyone in the room was like, it's a chair. And he's like, okay. And he put the chair upside down and he said, what is this? And we're like, well, it's just an upside down chair. And then he got out like a, like a pocket, like a screwdriver. Yeah. And he started taking the chair apart and he took it apart, took all the pieces apart and he stacked all the pieces on his desk. And he's like, he's like, is this still a chair? And we're like, sort of, it's like an Ikea chair, like it's been yeah. disassembled, but you know, it's still a chair. <laughs> And then he took all the pieces and he started putting them in different corners of the classroom. And he's like, you know, w w is this still a chair? And we're like, well, no. <laughs> and he's like, well, where did the chair go? Like, because the chair was really your construction of mm. like what this thing was. And when I was working in this magazine world and having to like reconsider a magazine mm. as a digital property, it was, that was something I always, always thought about was like, what, yeah. what is the extent of what this brand is, this city magazine or this wedding magazine or this fashion magazine? What, what is the DNA of that, that we need to keep? If we're doing a Twitter feed, mm -hmm. what is, what are the things that make this magazine what it is that are the essential like chairness of this magazine that we need to maintain, yeah. even if it's in a totally fragmented and different environment and, um, yeah, so I applied a lot of that thinking to this job, and I was really good at it. And uh, me and I ran a team of thirty people, and we was like editors and designers and people doing coding and marketing. And um, collectively, we won like twenty-seven national awards Jeez. for all the work we were doing because we were just like a team. We were like on fire, and we were just like making these amazing websites and was winning awards and huge traffic numbers and. 
um, in the middle of all that, the iPad was invented. Mm. And I was like, the iPad is something we should be paying attention to. And I had an idea for like an iPad magazine. Mm. It was like a kind of iPad only yeah. digital thing and you'd swipe. And at the time, a lot of the ideas around iPad magazines, this is uh, to me, like it sounds bonkers when I say all this aloud mm. because at the time, these were like genuine conversations we were having. But like today, you, the web is so different than it was, you know, 10 years ago. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, at the time it was like, oh, we're going to take this magazine that we're going to make a PDF of it and then you'll just flip through it on your iPad screen. Like, and it's like, why would you do that? Like it's no one, no one reads that way on, mm -hmm. the, on an iPad. So I had this idea to make a magazine that was really like designed for iPads. It's wiping, it animated covers and so on. The, the company wasn't that interested in doing the idea. So I quit and mm -hmm. I did this magazine. And uh, I won a big national award for it. And it was like, people talked about it. It was exciting. And one day out of the blue, Amazon calls me on the phone. And they're like, hey, do you want to work for Amazon? Like, we, we want to hire you to like work on stuff. And it's a weird experience. Like, I'm Canadian. I'm like living in Toronto. I have a house. I have a family. I have like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got friends. You know, we're, we're well established in Toronto. Yeah. And, um, but it is this experience of like you, it's like getting called up to the, you know, the all-star team. Yeah. And, and, you know, they, it's a chance to work on something big and global and exciting. And you don't, you know, I'd never been to Seattle before. I didn't know anything about Seattle. I don't know the the politics of Amazon. Like you only get Amazon's version of the story. Right. So, right. so it's very positive and enthusiastic. <laughs> and so you come here and you're like excited because you've got this new job and you like arrive at Amazon. And for me, like, you know, South Lake Union is just this kind of walled garden of Amazon people. Like mm -hmm. it's, there's apartments and people live in South Lake Union. They work in South Lake Union. They don't really engage with a larger city. Like so many people that I worked with at Amazon really treated their time there, like doing like a tour of duty mm. in the military where it's like, you're going to go be stationed somewhere for two years and you're not putting down roots. You're not trying to learn about the place. You're just there to do your job. And a lot of people, it's funny you said it's about the NAST with the radio in yeah. your mind, but like a lot of people work at Amazon so they can have Amazon on their resume mm. so that they can leverage that to get a different job somewhere else. <laughs> and um, I'm not saying that's that's a universal truth, but yeah. like I, I found that experience that there's a lot of people who are at the company for a couple of years and then they move on. And there's mm. almost a culture of like high turnover at Amazon that is like is like by design. Maybe that's why like I had Guy you know Guy Keltner of the Acid Tongue. Uh, I don't know that name. Um it's like one of the bigger bands in yeah. Seattle. And he has a thing where he doesn't like tech companies. Yeah. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But sure. during the podcast he was talking about um reasons he doesn't like tech companies and about how when these tech people move here, yeah. they're not interested in enhancing the culture yeah. of Seattle. And then you just added a point where like some yeah. of them move here, yeah. not even to lay roots. I, had a, I have a friend who is basically about to get a, a great job in tech. Mm -hmm. And his dream job is to be a music producer. And then I think about my friends that I have that are or damn near close to being homeless from just doing music. Sure. And that's their entire life. And they, they instead of they rather do that than work. A corporate job you know like i yeah. have so many friends well as, as they get older like i doubt fucking like 
Like I consider Greg Cypher a friend. I doubt sure. he would be like, fuck a corporate job. He probably understands that he needs to make some money sure. and also find a way to bleed, um, do do his his craft as well, right? Sure. But like like some of my younger friends, you know, like they'll they rather either just do the gig economy or yeah do whatever so they can truly just focus on you. They rather have eight roommates yeah. versus work at Amazon. Sure. You know, just that's just like I don't know if that's ego or, or whatever the situation is. But I, I, I see both sides like my friend this specific friend, he has a total different I feel like it's a different experience than any other people, like like how his family moved here and all yeah. all that. And then maybe you got you kinda have to look about why are certain people going to like Amazon, right? Like for my friend, for example, um, his, his family is like Ethiopian, right? Yeah. And then like, if you're, if you're, if you're already like migrating here, right? You're yeah. not going to just come here to mess around. You want to get a fucking good job, you know? Sure. So you, you get this good job and then you still have like hobbies outside of that just because you work at Amazon or whatever. doesn't yeah. mean that's like you were saying, that's not, that's not the only thing sure. you love in your life. So what what's the difference between having this the extra money and being able to do your craft yeah. versus doing your craft and having no money? Like some there's, there's just like a there's there's just two sides to the coin, you know. And like um, I understand both sides, and I believe like I talked about I've talked about enough on the podcast that yeah, oh, it's been like three months now or so. This uh this guy working. Oh, Fuck, I forget the name of the company. He works, he was working, he's this Indian guy that works mm-hmm. at this tech company in Seattle. And out of the blue, he emailed me and just wanted to meet for coffee and said he had listened to the podcast and about me talking about tech mm-hmm. and how he just wanted to bounce some ideas off of me on like how he feels that tech people can connect more with sure. the music scene in Seattle. Yeah. And that's still something I, think about a lot like why i feel like there should be more blending of some way or another of tech and music and maybe yeah. that uplifts the culture more but I, I don't know yeah it's it's interesting i mean so when i moved to seattle um i you know had this connection to working at amazon yeah but i didn't you know i i had worked in magazines i had done it, I, I was really interested in like cultural life of the city because i worked in a lot of like city magazines that were covering arts and covering restaurants and something like seattle met or mm-hmm. the stranger like covered the kind of beats that i was really interested in and that i would be involved in in toronto mm-hmm. and so you know when i first moved here there was it was kind of the end of the age of like mp3 blogs around that time where there were a bunch of blogs that were covering local music and they all sort of folded right around the time i moved here Mm. um there was like 206 up there was uh, three imaginary girls there was uh, miss casey carter's blog and these were all places where you could learn about local music and local hip-hop yeah and shows that were happening and um i started going to shows like i just I would sort of go randomly to shows. You know, I went to see rock shows. I went to see hip hop shows, and um, you, I, didn't, you didn't care how big the like the big of the artist or anything. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I was just really interested um, in learning about the cultural life of the city. Got it. And I, I had briefly before I was in Seattle, I briefly lived in Bushwick okay. in New York, mm-hmm. and um, Bushwick was at the time it was like 2012. It was like a time when that was like Brooklyn was like the epicenter of 
cultural stuff it seemed there was just a lot of music and in cool restaurants there was a restaurant called roberta's pizza like mm. that was a block from my apartment and so i was at roberta's like <laughs> once a week and i was at this super hip restaurant that everyone was always talking about and celebrities would show up at one, one night it was closed because like the president went and had pizza there <laughs> like it was it was um an interesting experience but there were also like this just really interesting there were like a lot of rooftop parties and you know, a band would be playing on like this rooftop of a building and you'd have to sort of finagle your way into the building to mm -hmm. like get up onto the rooftop to see this show. And these these weren't like shows that were like exclusive or secret. They were like just secret because nobody could be bothered to like advertise them or talk about what was happening. And when I first moved to Seattle, I was like, I bet this same thing is happening here somewhere. Right. And I don't know where. But I'm I want to find it because I'm interested in like being part of whatever culturally is happening here. And I remember early on there were like shows at places like Candy Mountain and the Ant Hill and the Fortress, which were all people's basements. And you had to know the right person and mm. you had to kind of know the address and you showed up and you hoped it was like I remember I went to a show that was at the back of like an auto garage in <laughs> Soto and it was a phenomenal show, but it was just in like an old auto garage. Like it was um, anyway, uh, where am I going with this? So when I first moved here, I, I, we were talking about like, how do you connect these scenes? This kind yeah. of like the newcomer scene of like, say new people from Amazon with like the local music scene. And when I was at Amazon, I actually started doing a lot of things internally. Like there's internal message boards. There's a whole community of stuff like that you can find out if you need information about like cool restaurants to eat at. There's some internal like community board you can go to and like get that information that's all amazonians talking to other amazonians mm -hmm. um and so i started a whole bunch of like community threads on like local hip-hop and local music in order to try to foster like more interest in local music and and i found it it wasn't that successful mm. and and i reflect a lot on why that was and part of it is that you know, if you're interested in local music and what's happening in Seattle, it's you're kind of a special person already. Right. Like, like I would meet people all the time who would be like, "Oh, you 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 like hip hop? Well, I love hip hop. I'm really into Drake and Kanye and and like, have you heard the new whatever Kendrick yeah. Lamar record? And it's like, okay, but what about like? all the people who are making hip hop here in Seattle. Like there's a whole history of, of hip hop in here. Like people have been making hip hop in Seattle since 1983, yeah. 1981. Um, and you know, for me, like I learned a lot about the kind of the, the cultural life of Seattle about gentrification mm -hmm. from listening to hip hop records mm. and getting the perspective of someone who lives in the CD, what they think about, Seattle about going to Azell's to get a snack pack or what and and I learned about a lot of things in the city through hip hop like for me that was the kind of the it's the cheesy thing to say like the poetry of the streets or something but like, <laughs> yeah. like I really did learn a lot about like life in Seattle from listening to hip hop music mm. and um, then I would try to convey this to coworkers of mine like oh you gotta check out this album you gotta see this this artist and and I found also I. I I met a lot of people, and I don't know if this is just because if you work in tech, you're either wired differently or you just think about, um, uh, like, you're just not that interested in music mm. in the first place. And so I would meet someone who would say, oh, yeah, I'm really into music. 
And I'd be like, oh, great. Like, it's, hey, there's this cool hip hop show happening on Friday and it's going to be at Chop Suey and we should go check it out. Uh, Chop Suey is a venue in Seattle. Yes. Um, and, uh, but I would have trouble, trouble getting someone to come out. Yeah. But I would, that, that same person would show up for work. They would put their headphones in. They would press, press play on the Spotify algorithm uh. and listen to music for eight hours while they wrote code. But the purpose of the music wasn't to, listen to it or absorb it it was to have white noise to tune out the world so i can write computer code Hmm. so music is like almost viewed for that person like music is wallpaper like Hmm. they're not looking for music they want to engage with they're looking music they can ignore and and that was a thing that i found hard to overcome is that if someone isn't really list, interested in the music they're listening to in the first place, yeah. it's hard to engage with them on music. Mm. Um, and so anyway, but that was sort of for me, like how I found community initially when I moved here, especially community outside of Amazon, yeah. was by going to hip hop shows. And you know, I, I would be the old white guy who would show up in the room. And you know, sometimes I'd be going to the the basement show in you know somewhere in the North End and everybody else in the room is 23 and and is looking at me like are you lost sir are you like <laughs> can we help you and and but what happened was because maybe because i i do stand out like people started knowing who i was yeah um and at the same time when i first moved to seattle instagram was like brand new mm-hmm. and i started an instagram account which was like hey i'm going to have an instagram account everybody like it's like having email in the yeah. 90s it's like i'm going to be on instagram now <laughs> and i started this instagram account which was mainly like gary's adventures in seattle mm. for where the intended audience were my friends and family back in toronto mm. like it was like we're not going to see each other a lot here's a way to keep up with what i've got going on in my life and as i went to more hip hop shows um there was this, as I said, this weird time when all these MP3 blogs were sort of dying off and this Larry Mizell Jr. had been a longtime columnist about hip hop in The Stranger and he stopped writing about hip hop in 2014, mm. around the same time I was doing this Instagram account. And this odd thing happened that that a lot of people in the hip hop community thought I was like a journalist covering hip hop mm. and started following me. And started like at replying me and started like DMing me to be like, hey, can you, you should come to my show. It's happening on Friday and it's, here's the password to get in or whatever yeah. that was. And, and there was this strange thing that happened where suddenly like I was like the most famous person in hip hop who wasn't on stage. Like I would show up at a show and people on stage would like shout me out. There was this <laughs> one rapper at one point at a show who like made a whole verse about me and then got the audience to sing it like <laughs> while I was in the room. Like wow. it was funny. Like it's a it's a strange experience for me because I wasn't I didn't start any of this to like be right known or famous or whatever that was like i just went to shows because i was interested in the music and and yeah you know i guess because a lot of other people who, who are in their 40s and look like me don't come to shows like that's i stand out but at the same time like i was just interested in music and interested in like seeing what was going on mm-hmm. and then how long into that did you end up creating crane city so uh i moved here as i said at the start of 20 uh, late 2012 early 2013 is mm-hmm. when i moved here and um, I sort of wrote about hip hop on Instagram for probably three years. Mm. Like I was, and, and it, it was a slow evolution. Like it started out as just Gary's adventures in Seattle. 
Um, once there was this obvious like dynamic happening between me and the hip hop community where people were asking me to come to shows, I was going to shows, I would post little Instagram clips, video clips of shows that I went to. Um, uh, at some point I had written, I'd started writing record reviews. Mm -hmm. So I'd go to a show and people would sell CDs or people would hand me their CD or people were still doing CDs at the time. People would give me their link to their band camp and say, hey, go download my album. Yeah. And and I was interested in kind of exploring music and seeing what everyone had going on. So I started writing a lot of record reviews. And I would just say, hey, this is a Jar of D record that I just got. And here's what I liked about it. And here's and and oftentimes I was the only person who had ever written a review of this record mm. because it was a lot of independent DIY self-released music. And um, at some point I had written like 300 record reviews over the course of a couple of years. And were, were some of the, were they honest or were they all mostly good, nice or were some of them like they yeah. lack the whatever? I, I had a tendency that if I, if I really didn't like something, I didn't review it at all. Right. Like okay, it's fair. just, there's no point in me saying like this sucks. Like yeah. that, that serves nothing. It doesn't help anyone. Yeah. Um, records that I love are easy to write about. Yeah. The things that I found tough to write about were records that were just fine. Like, yep, it's a rap record. It sounds fine. It's fine. Yeah. And and like that was always a challenge for me to say, like, do I write about this at all if if I'm just okay with it? It does it help anyone for me to be like, Yeah, I don't know, it's good. Like Yeah. Or like should I try to talk about it? Should I talk about the, the positives and the strengths and the weaknesses? Like it's not really my job to tell someone what they're doing. But you know, at, at the same time, like I find like one of the things that that I see over and over again in in music, especially in local music, and I, I is there's a lot of rap music that comes out of a culture of like struggle rap mm -hmm. i would describe where it's like someone who hasn't had opportunities hasn't had the chances to be where they would like to be that's i think a universal feeling we all have yeah and there was this one rap record that i will not say what it is but like the rapper's songs like song after song is like when i have the mic you're really gonna know what i'm all about like someday when like when like when everyone's listening to me you're gonna know what my views on things are yeah. and i saw this this artist perform at one point and he was performing these songs and the whole time the the irony of like you're holding the mic like <laughs> like we're all in the room yeah. like like it's it's like you've spent so much of your time in your career focused on the struggle <laughs> that that when you actually like have made it in some level like you you don't have anything to say like and that's such a disappointment it's like yeah. where it's like what do you like climate change is a thing like can you rap about that like yeah. can you convince people to do more recycling like that's why I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what but it's like there's so many things in the world that we should be taking action on that we should like when you have a microphone and you're in front of a group of people like uh, are you using that opportunity to talk about something that's that's worth talking about yeah so with that going to hip-hop shows since the early 2010 era isn't that mm -hmm. so cool we can say the 2010 era now yeah i know <laughs> 2010s um you've probably seen so many artists even even a lot of artists with the potential fall off mm -hmm. or you still see them making music to this day but it doesn't seem like 
they've moved. They may it just seems like they've moved laterally mm-hmm. in Seattle. What what has that been how has that been like for you to witness things like that? Yeah, I mean it's it's funny. Like you I think there's this this common like human we we do something and we have a level of success. Like I I asked uh, online yesterday on my Instagram, like does anyone have any questions they want like to me to talk about? And they want me to talk about when I'm on the podcast. And I so I posted this on Instagram and the only responses I got were from people who were asking when I was going to do something again. Hmm. So it's like, "Oh, you made this movie about hip hop. So when are you making the next movie about local hip hop? Hmm. Or um, I did a compilation album uh, in 2017 with a bunch of local artists. And it's like, when are you doing the next compilation? And and I personally am not someone who likes to repeat right. things. Like it's, it's like when I've done something, like if I'm going to go back to that well and do it again, like how am I going to make it interesting if I do this a second time? Like I'm not going to, I made this movie called Newcomer and I, I took all of my Instagram clips from a year of Instagram. Um, so so I was saying I was shooting Instagram clips. Mm-hmm. Let me go back to your original question, which is that I was shooting Instagram clips from like 2013 on to, I mean, I still shoot Instagram clips when I'm at shows. Um, but in 2019, um, there was the Seattle Hip Hop Film Festival, first year of the Seattle Hip Hop Film Festival at Washington Hall. What the? I've never even heard of this. Yeah. And so they've <laughs> done uh, two or three years of it now. Um, what the? And uh, it's a group of people who are passionate about hip hop. Uh, it's, it's a group called, um, it's affiliated with 206 Zulu, which is a, okay. a chapter of the Zulu Nation that's based in Seattle. Um, they're based out of Washington Hall. And uh, what I should clarify is that the Seattle Hip Hop Film Festival is not a film festival of Seattle movies. It's a it's a hip hop movies from all around the world oh. that they that they show. It just happens to be the Seattle edition of this hip hop film festival. <laughs> Got it. Um, but the first year they were doing that, they asked me for help with some promotion and because I I have this Instagram. I have a lot of Instagram followers and they were like, hey, could you help promote this event? We would love your help with it. And and I thought, you know, I've got all these clips on my phone from years of hip hop shows. So maybe I can put together like a highlight reel of mm-hmm. like the best of the year. And I started going through my phone and I was like, I had hours and hours of footage, like just yeah. an unbelievable amount of footage. And, and some of the footage was like, moments that for me felt like the Jimi Hendrix setting his guitar on fire kind of moments. Like I was probably the only person at this show who shot this clip of this moment. Mm. And, um, and so I, I really wanted to collect together all of these clips. And so I started going through this like process of like trying to make sense of years of Instagram footage. And, you know, some of it was, poorly shot some of it was the sound was terrible i was beside the speaker mm-hmm. um and trying to make sense of what all of that was in order to create like a story that i could tell about the scene from my experience of the years that i've been kind of covering the scene and involved with the scene um and i have seen a lot like i've seen artists who've come and gone and artists who continue to to thrive and i, and I think there's a really like going back to your original question about like seeing the evolution of artists. What's amazing to me is how much the values of tech have in some ways 
found their way into the everyday culture of people who live in Seattle. And mm -hmm. I want to explain this point is that tech people have a tendency to go to walk into some situation that they have no experience in and say, we're going to reinvent this thing and make it brand new. Like I worked on a project at Amazon to make a magazine and I was the only person on the team who ever worked at a magazine. And everybody else in the room was just like, oh, mag who cares? Like, we're just going to make magazines again. Like, we're going to reinvent the magazine. And it was so insulting to the fact that, like, there's a whole, like, tradition and history and, like, there's a way things are done. And I'm not saying that we have to be slavish to tradition, but, like, we need to be respectful of what has happened before us. Yeah. And, and the thing I find in hip-hop in Seattle in particular is that I constantly meet young artists who know nothing about hip hop in the city prior to like two years ago. Yeah. Like, you know, someone will say to me like, oh, we got to talk about an OG like Jarv D or Saul. And these guys who really came up in like 2010 are treated like they're like the OGs of the scene. Yeah. As if somehow like there weren't people making hip hop in the 80s. Yeah. And some of those guys who were making hip hop in the 80s, I just put a record out with this guy, Specs Wizard. Specs Wizard is my age. He's like in his 50s. And he has been making hip hop in Seattle consistently since 1988. Hmm. And he puts out an album every year, every couple years. He's still putting out albums. He's put out like 25 albums. And amazingly talented person but gets no real respect or recognition for the fact that he's just grinding every every day he's grinding and making making music you know vitamin d is a yeah. phenomenally talented producer his first group ghetto children put out their first cassette in 92 and so he's been making music since 92 and and that's you know decades of making amazing hip-hop in the city and phenomenally talented but again, I don't think a lot of young people, maybe vitamin D because he's started to get a real cult status in the city. I think a lot of young rappers, he's been working with a lot of young talent lately. Yeah. But um, I find like, I don't think a lot of people know like the huge wealth of hip hop music he's made over the past, whatever, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's the thing that I feel like I... I wish there was more um, awareness. Does that come from lack of media attention? Yeah, I think so. I yeah. think that's part of it. And I think also we just don't, We there's such a focus on, um, you know, hip hop came from New York and everyone knows the New York story of hip hop and the NWA West Coast side of that story. And, and then there's so much discussion around like mainstream music that the references that everyone has is to Kanye and Kendrick and Soldier Boy or whatever. Like mm -hmm. no one's looking back through Seattle's history. I think the other thing I would say about Seattle hip hop in particular is that the vast majority of it, huge percentage of it was DIY self-released. Mm -hmm. And 100%. and the problem is, is that, so I, I've been writing a book about the early days of Northwest hip hop, oh, the wow. first decade. Have so, you been interviewing? Uh, I've talked to some people. I'm, I'm working up to that. Hell but yeah. but like what I've been really interested in is that the first decade, which is starts in 81 okay. and goes to sort of 92, 93, um, which is otherwise the, the, the Mix-A-Lot years. Okay. So that's like Sir Mix-A-Lot was huge. Uh, there was this record label, Nasty Mix, which was his record label. 
self-released DIY record label. Um, Nasty Mix was this huge like sensation um, in the hip hop world in the late 80s and early 90s. Um, and then all that history was just erased and washed away by grunge. Mm. Because grunge blows up in 91. That's when you have the you know, holy trinity of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden all drop records at the end of 91. And the the pivot of of Seattle music just just ignores hip hop and goes straight into grunge. And and hip hop goes completely underground. And there's like a there's a really famous story that like Vitamin D's first group Ghetto Children signed a major label record deal with Geffen. So they were the okay. people who put out Nirvana. And so Ghetto Children were going to be like the hip hop Nirvana. But the Geffen people had been working with the Beastie Boys and the Dust Brothers who did Paul's Boutique. And they were like, we're going to we're going to get these guys to produce your record. So they were basically saying to Vitamin D, who's a very talented producer, we just need you to show up at the recording studio and sing your raps on top of like, we're gonna have other people make, make the music. Yeah. And he 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 and the ghetto children like walked away from the deal. Mm. They were just like, no, like we're like, we wanna be both authentic, we wanna be at our own thing, we wanna be at our, 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 our own music. And that attitude I think is, is very much what has informed Northwest hip hop like mm. ever since like i think i think in some ways grunge kind of like drove the scene underground right and this sense of like distrust because grunge was really a time when like major labels came in and just strip mined the city if you could play guitar you were, you were a grunge band and suddenly you got a major label record deal and a lot of crap came out like for a lot of years mm. from the city because a lot of people who got put on were just you know people who had the right connections or whatever but you know cobain died in 94 so I was 21. Yeah. Um, and uh, Shit, a lot yeah. happened when you were 90, 21 then, man. Uh, 1994, <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Pre-Y2K, that's when we all thought the world was going to end. Yeah, yeah that's that was, so wild. That was, uh, we were pretty sure that was, like, I remember in 1999 having like a like a party at my apartment and like a bunch of friends came. So Y2K was about just the numbers not lining up or something? What was it? Something yes. about the internet. So, so a lot of number systems. So like, in the late 90s, like computers had only been around for like whatever, 10 years, 15 years. And a lot of earlier computers, like computers from the 70s, only had two digit numbers mm -hmm. systems. So they was like counting from whatever, 77, 78, 79, 98, 99. And then the next number after 99 was zero. Yeah. And there was concern that there were a lot of, um, not like day to day, like not people's laptops and stuff, but like, there's computer systems that manage the Hoover Dam. There's computer systems that manage nuclear missile sites. There's computer systems that manage like these old industrial, like, like, uh, you know, whatever computer systems yeah. that, and there was just not a lot of clarity as to what was going to happen if they experienced this bug. And so, you know, in going into like Y2K, <laughs> like it was this mass effort of like, computer scientists and computer people like all around the world trying to vet vet computer systems to make sure they weren't going to break yeah when the number when the day switched over from 99 to a thousand to, to whatever 2000 and but at the time like we didn't really know like that there's a, there's a movie that came out in the late 90s called uh until the end of the world okay and the movie is is more or less about like y2k's like worst case scenario happening and um uh 
but I remember on the like in, on the New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety nine, like having a party, and like one of my friends like brought like bottled water and like you know supplies. Like we were like ready to if we had to like live in our apartment for for a week because it was going to be chaos outside. The world was going to end. You know, nuclear <laughs> missiles were going to launch. Like who knows what was going to happen? So damn, yeah. And then now none of us even think about that. Yeah, I know. No, nothing happened. And we were all like, oh, it, that wasn't a big deal. But, Shit. but you know, you could also argue that, like, nothing happened because for the five years previous to that, huge investment went into updating all these computer systems. Right. So we don't know if, if nothing, if no one actually put effort into it, maybe something yeah, would have happened. Maybe. Damn. Is it, a, is it worth watching that movie or am I going to be disappointed? Uh, you know, the director <laughs> who did the movie, uh, Wim Wenders, he's a German film director. He, uh, the movie's in English. Actually, yeah. it's in a bunch of languages, but it's mostly in English. Um, he recently re-released it mm. as like a six-hour director's cut. Yeah. So when it came out in theaters, it was like two hours long and it didn't make a lot of sense. Uh, and then he went back and I guess he'd shot like six hours worth of footage that never made it into them. So I watched it recently because it's online. I think it's on YouTube. Okay. Um, but I watched it in like, kind of like a TV show. Yeah. Like I just watched like an hour every every so often and it was like watch it was like binge watching a TV show. Yeah. And it was kind of fun to to watch. So I yeah. recommend it. It was yeah. it's interesting. But I'll it's like it also out. like it's kind of interesting throwback because it's it's like takes place in, as I said, like this kind of Y two K era. So their idea of like what the future is going to be is also because I think the movie was made in like ninety two or ninety three. So they 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 were trying to guess what two thousand was going to be like. Mm -hmm. And so it has this interesting like People are really into VR in yeah. a way that like never happened, or at least it hasn't happened till now. Yeah, like, people have like Oculuses on, like they're doing the VR, but it's like, you know, it's all pixels. Shit, that's funny. That's pretty. Fun. So when did you? When did uh, Crane City become more of a record label? Oh, we got to talk about music. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, uh, we got to talk about yeah, everything. So, what time is it? That's... So Crane. Oh shit. Uh, we're we're like way over time. Yeah, I'm supposed to pick someone up for okay. the show. Um, we should do a part. Oh, why is there a YouTube video of <laughs> I was looking up cameras? Um, I'm happy to do a part two if you want to do. Yeah, that. let's do a part two. Um, you're we'll very interesting. Yeah, <laughs> you're. This is this has been the introductory introduction. Is it introductory? Sure. Introductory episode of uh, Gary Campbell. <laughs> He's an Amazon guy. He's a tech guy. He's a magazine I'm guy. I'm not a tech guy. Huh? I feel like if you're at Amazon, you kind of a tech guy. Yeah, kinda. I only worked there for a few years. He's not a tech guy. He's a magazine guy. He's a music guy. He has a pandemic beard. <laughs> um, he's a Canadian. There's a lot about this guy. He's a he's a Buddhist. Yeah, I mean sometimes. Sometimes a Buddhist. Um, there will be a lot more to come. You're gonna be a returning guest sure. for sure. Um, how about what is what is some advice that you have? For up and coming artists, creators, influencers. You know, there's this great piece of advice that Larry Mizell Jr. said in a movie. The, he, there was a movie called The Other Side about Seattle hip hop, and Larry is interviewed in it. And he he says this really simple thing, which is just be good. Like like work at your craft, learn history, and like pay attention to what other people are doing. Like, I think there's a tendency for a lot of young artists to be very, like, myopic in that they listen to music that they like mm -hmm. and they try to make music that is like the music they like. And 
like listen to some classical music, listen to some reggae, listen to some like goth music. Like it's like there's so much out there to inform what you're doing. Listen to stuff you don't like and learn why you don't like it. Yeah. Like I think that's that's the thing that I find is there's so many young hip hop artists who whose kind of thing is just emulation. It's like I like Frank Ocean, so I'm making music that sounds like Frank Ocean. And, you know, sure, copying is a whole artistic tradition of like copying things to learn how how they're made and learn how to make them better. Yeah. Um, people used to paint Picasso, like paint beside what a Picasso looked like so they could understand how Picasso worked. Um, but I think there's also a desire to kind of get outside of emulation and have something to say. Like it's what what do you think about the challenges in life? What do you think about the pandemic? What do you think about climate change? Like, what do you think about the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade? Like there's there's stuff going on in the world that is worth commenting on and thinking about. And that's, that's what I'd say. Hell yeah. Okay. I think it's been almost two hours. Like, sorry. No, this has been great. I gotta go meet with somebody too. Oh, wow. This has been fun. Um, like I said, you'll definitely be back so we could talk about music. Sure, sure. <laughs> this has been such a good origin episode, though, right? Okay. This sure. has been great. It's like the it's like the special issue of the comic book. Yes, <laughs> yes, um, yes. Uh, we did it. Um, this is the NAS podcast. Wait, what is the easiest way to reach you? By the way, uh, I'm on Instagram. Okay, Crane, Crane City, City Music. C R A N E City Music. And uh, yeah, this is the NAS podcast with Gary Campbell. And we did it.